Carolyn Steele's TED Global Talk has been heard over one million times, and for very good reason. How food shapes our cities is as complex as it is fascinating. Every day in a city the size of London, 30 million meals are served, but where does all the food come from? Architect-trained Carolyn Steele discusses the daily miracle of feeding a city and shows how ancient food routes shape the modern world. Her superb award-winning provocative book, Hungry City, is the backdrop for probably our most relevant conversation to date. I'm thrilled to welcome on board IQ Boxing as the very first sponsor of Your London Legacy podcast. Run by the inspirational head coach, Xavier Miller, IQ Boxing Club in Neasden, Northwest London, is one big close-knit family where the boxers and coaches have excellent working relationships and every boxer supports each other on their individual journey. Every young boxer is given individual time so that they can flourish as a boxer, but more importantly, as a person of character. Regular classes are held for juniors and amateurs, and there are also keep fit boxer-sized classes. IQ Boxing is built on the pillars of respect, hard work and dedication, and with its supportive trustees, grows from strength to strength. You can find out more about the London Legacy IQ Boxing are creating by following them on Instagram at IQXavierMiller or www.iqboxing.co.uk. I'm Steve Lazarus, and this is Your London Legacy. Oh, well, I'm delighted to be here today with Carolyn Steele, not Caroline, please, Carolyn Steele, uh, in her wonderful property in Balcombe Street. So thank you very much for uh, welcoming me into your home today, Carolyn. Pleasure. Balcombe Street, I think, was well known for some been... nefarious activities back in the 70s. That's right. Yeah. With... You, you can split taxi drivers into those who know and those who don't. It's very interesting. So am I showing my age now? Yes. It, no, well, <laughs> actually, yes. Um, <laughs> it was the first uh, IRA siege, yes. hostage siege, just a few doors down. Uh-huh. Yeah. I won't give the number where we are, but it's that was twenty in the 20s, I think, down down yes. the street from here, wasn't it? About yeah. 50 yards yeah. on the other so side. Yeah, so not far away. So, do you get, so just for those who, who aren't aware, there was um, IRA uh, freedom fighters, terrorists, um, took some hostages from their, from their flat, I believe, didn't yes. they? Yes. Well, I think they were escaping from the police and they ran That's into right. the basement to, you know, basically get away. Uh-huh. And then they, they took the residents who've no doubt sort of sitting down to a nice quiet meal or something hostage <laughs> yeah and uh yes it was the first such incident in london so it's it's sort of it's become infamous this this yeah this i story. mean it's very peaceful now yeah <laughs> well, yeah, sorry, you don't get four, you don't get four or five day sieges around here so often. No, no, no. We're, we're fairly siege free these good, days. I'm very good. happy to say. W- were you here at the time, or had you not? No, moved no. Yet? I I moved here in '91, so okay. that was already quite a long time. Yeah, yeah. Because that was back in the '70s. Mm. Okay. Well, I'm not aware of any other claim to fame apart from you, you living here, of course. But <laughs> <laughs> so once again, um, I'm delighted to say we've got Carolyn Steele on the uh, the podcast today. Now, Carolyn is a trained architect, I think, by profession, mm. but I think fair to say more recently become very well known in in certain circles for um, the concept and the idea and the subsequent book that you wrote called Hungry City: How Food Shapes Our Lives. Now, I saw you not in person, but on the YouTube of um, TEDx Global Talk that you gave some, how many years ago was that? That was 2009. Uh, that was actually a TED Talk. TED, TED Talk, TEDx what did I say? Is the, yeah. Oh, t- I beg your pardon. No, that's perfectly yes. fine. But um, it was just a TED Talk. Yes. So TEDx is the kind of the licensed out one it that you, you do yourself. It is. Um, and I'm going to that one in a couple of weeks time in um, 
Uh, the South Bank. Yeah, oh, yeah, great. Which is very oh, good. Yeah. Thoroughly recommend it. But yours was the bigger global version. It was sure. the first yeah. global TED Global in the UK. Yes. It was in Oxford. And uh, it's quite scary because, well, I don't know, you're just in with a whole bunch of people like the woman who discovered, you know, black holes and, you know, the guy who invented, well, not electricity, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean, just crazy, intelligent, amazing yes. people with great graphics. And yeah. you kind of think, you know, what am I doing here? <laughs> And I've got a map of old London town. <laughs> and I've got bad crayon drawings that I did it to in the morning, you know, and I was actually on after the guy who he's remapped Manhattan, the island of Manhattan, as it would have looked before, you know, Europeans showed up uh-huh. with a Hollywood studio, you know, so I followed that kind of extraordinary Technicolor presentation with my, as I say, bad crayon drawings. <laughs> um but you know, it's the idea that counts. I suppose it, it is the idea, and I, I believe, of course, that you had you've had over a million downloads, views of the yes. of your talk. Yeah, it's incredible. So the crayon drawings or not, it's obviously struck a struck a nerve. With, Maybe uh, it's the crayon drawings that did it. Well, I don't know. Quite possibly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean it's it's very um, it's such a cliche to say, but I mean you never expect, you know, when you have an idea like that, that that it's going to have a life and that people are mm. going to be interested and it's going to really take off. So. Um, I want to think of another way of saying it's humbling mm. because that's just so irritating when people say that. <laughs> but it, it, it's surprising and lovely in a way that makes you feel very grateful. Yes. Yeah. So presumably the book had recently been released just prior it to had, your being... it, they were They were one of the first people onto me after the book came out and I was astonished. I mean, mm. I didn't even know what Ted was, to be honest. And um, But they must have an extraordinarily efficient kind of, you know, hoovering service. I mean, they must just literally look, read all the books that come out, all the films that are made. You know, they must follow all the, I guess, scientific journals because they were onto me very, very quickly. Mm. And... Um, is, is probably the single most helpful thing I've done because in pu- there's no money in publishing these days. So, you know, you, you think your publishers are going to send you on these grand tours, you know, and actually they don't do anything really. Um, so, you know, the fact that I've got a 15-minute version of what is actually quite a, a big idea yes. out there and available is, is has been astonishingly helpful. Yes. Well, you saw it, for example. I, I, I did. Yeah, I yeah. did. And I, I saw that before I saw the book. Um, so one thing led to another. You join the dots, as you do, with, as I found out, over the last year or so doing the podcast. One, one person leads to another, one idea leads to another. Um, and another door opens. It's, it, it's amazing how these things happen. Synchronicity, if you Absolutely. want to call it that. But you've got to put yourself out there in the first place. And, of course, be brave enough to stand there on your, your feet and, and present. But mm. you're a natural, I would say. I mean, you do it with humour and dignity and poise. Well, that's very kind. <laughs> I did a lot of teaching. That really helps. Okay. I remember being terrified the first time I stood up in front of 20 architecture students, you know, and yeah. I was only about two years older than them. Um, <laughs> so I felt like, a, you know, what was it Michelle Obama said? You know, imposter syndrome. Yes. Um, but you just do it and you actually realise that even if you're only two years older than somebody, you still have two years more experience than they do. There's still something to share. Uh-huh. And I, th- I think if you see it as sh- more as sharing than telling, then it comes across a lot better and you feel less nervous because it's actually becomes something you do in service of the idea. Hmm. It's not about you. Yeah. You know, and that's, I feel that very strongly. Yes. And you've obviously got to be deeply passionate and embedded yes. with the concepts and ideas you're talking about. Exactly, so, yes. And it just comes naturally. Yes. Yeah. So just step back a little bit in time before that, because obviously the concepts in the book, Hungry City, and what the work you've been doing subsequently are all based on 
what has shaped our cities, how they've grown, the relationship with food and us city folk with rural communities and how we get our food and the domination of the multinational conglomerates and so on and so forth and how that's impacting us going forward. What were your earliest memories, if you like, of, of not necessarily these ideas, but the, the blend between, say, architecture and mm. city landscapes and food? When did you think you were going to stumble across sort of concepts like this? Well, I mean, this is the story of my life, actually. This is... <laughs> <laughs> Because um, very, and I'll try and keep it short, you know, very, very early on in my life, I think by the age of eight, I decided I wanted to be an architect, which is something I just have never understood because there's nothing like it in my family. Mm. They're all medical people or business people. But anyway, I decided architecture. And, you know, if I ever had a school project that, you know, write an essay about the Victorians, I would make it about Victorian architecture. You know, obsessive, so extraordinary. So I went um, to Cambridge to study architecture, sort of as planned as it were, and it was kind of fine. Although I would say, even in my first year, I started to realise that what excited me about architecture wasn't necessarily buildings, (laughs) which (laughs) sounds kind of odd. But, I mean, it took me a very, very long time to work out what it really was. I am very excited by buildings and interested in buildings, but it's not really the buildings per se. It's something to do with our relationship with the buildings. So it's some space that has no name, if you like, that's somewhere between us and a wall or, you know, us and a a situation. And so, you know, I was was 18 at this point. Um, I was following my dream and my dream seemed to be slightly fraying at the edges already. (laughs) And um, anyway, I I would say that then was the beginning of a roughly 20 year long search. I carried on being an architect. I very rapidly began teaching after I qualified. So I was practicing and teaching. In my teaching, I would usually... um, set my projects that I asked my students to design in the city. I'm from London, born and bred. Um, My dad was actually a doctor at the Brompton Chest Hospital, so I actually grew up bizarrely in South Ken, which, believe me, in the 60s was a perfectly normal thing to do. It wouldn't be normal now, but anyway, was then. So, you know, I knew what cities were because I'd lived in one all my life. And the way cities were discussed and talked about in architecture schools just wasn't a city as far as I was concerned. You know, it was, in other words, lots of discussions about facades and public space and, you know, sort of density. And I just thought, but living in a city isn't like that. You know, and so again, as I say, I'm sort of rather squashing a very, very complex journey into a a sort of what I hope will be a Mm soundbite. The desire to introduce real life into the architectural discourse, as it were, became more and more acute. It actually became almost like a pain. And and skipping out several critical stages, anyway, I eventually had the idea of writing about a city through food. And I know exactly where I was when I had that idea. I'd, I'd always put food in my students' projects. And actually, I did a study in Rome, where I looked at the market area, because, you know, intuitively, I was interested in the everyday life of the city, And I intuitively knew if you went where the markets were, where the food was, that's where kind of everyday life would be happening, you know. So it had been there or thereabouts in my thinking for a long time. But it was the insight that I could literally bring it forward and make food the thing. So the idea was, how would you describe a city through food? Right. And I remember, as I say, I know where I was when I had that idea. I was actually having a conversation with a colleague from the London School of Economics where I'd been teaching. And both of my arms just got 
instant goosebumps because I just knew that was my thing. And it was as much as I could do to avoid rushing out of the room and literally starting stop, work on stop what your would become Hungry City that yeah, very amazing. second. So it was it was the result of a 20-year search, if you like, to put real life into architecture. Yes. And I, food was my way of doing yeah. that. So, do, so you felt, presumably, that that's something that had been ignored, not, not specifically food per se, but people within cities had been ignored within the, the confines of architecture. Yes. I mean, you know, without wishing to get too analytical about this, you know, uh, what the Enlightenment gave us was academic thinking, you know, scientific thinking, humanistic thinking, lots of different ways of thinking, but all in their own little disciplines, mm. you know. And I mean, I love architecture because it is a very broad discipline. You know, you know, I mean, you as an architect, what you're doing is you're actually trying to construct, design and construct spaces that allow people to lead good lives. That's what you're trying to do. I mean, very few of them manage it, actually. <laughs> and it's a really hard thing to do. And I mean, I think some of the best cities have more or less grown up with, shall we say, only a peripheral involvement of, of architects. You know, in other words, there's, there's been a much more sort of... Um, you know, osmotic kind of organic evolution of districts and so on, where there may be a prevailing architectural idea, but ultimately people just build stuff and then get on with the daily, you know, yes. business of leading a life. So, you know, I think uh, when architecture became a discipline, which it only did in the 19th century, you know, there it was in its little silo, separate from planning, that was in another little silo, separate from sociology, that was in another little silo, and so on, and sure. so on and so on. And so it became very much the study of buildings and how, you, you know, the history of buildings. And, you know, you just study the Renaissance and the Baroque, the Neoclassical, and, blah, 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 and you just study how they're constructed. So you do brickwork, you do, you know, timber joints, you study how to keep the water out and the heat in and all of yeah. this stuff. And then you pop out the other end and theoretically you're fit to build places for people to live in. But actually, do you know anything about people? Do you know anything about what makes a good place to live? Sure. No, because, you know, Actually, learning about buildings is its a complicated thing. It takes a long time. So it's not surprising. I don't blame architects for this, but I just felt from very, very early on something was missing in the discourse and, you know, human, human life was really what was missing. Yes. So food was my way of sort of bringing real life into architecture. Yeah. And I, I love that idea that you suddenly felt the sort of chill up your spine of stumbled across this... Yeah. Um, a road to Damascus sort of uh, yes. idea and yes. theme that's holding everything together, the glue that holds everything together yes. in, your, in your ideas and concepts. So let's sort of think about London from, uh, because we're on a London-based podcast, we're sitting in London, you're a Londoner, so am I. But we have to go back in time before London, mm. sort of to ancient times mm. to understand how cities grew up and were formed. So can you just t talk us through a little mm. bit about that? Yes, I mean... It's very interesting if you look at a lot of great cities, where they evolve, it's very often at the um, at a crossing point on a river, or it's all to do with geography, obviously, or an obvious, you know, trading location. So Rome, for example, you know, is between the seven hills. It's places where people naturally came to meet uh, and trade, and often near rivers, because, you know, obviously, if you're going to settle down in a place, you need water you need fertile land. You know, so it's a sort of mysterious set of things. But if you look at the the prehistory of London, for example, um, it evolved where there was a, a natural crossing point of the Thames. That happens to be where London Bridge and Borough Market later evolved. 
And you don't have to sort of think very hard to think why that was. You know, people were crossing the river. They were coming from the north to the south and vice versa. They had different goods to exchange. It was a natural place to to have a sort of trading place that then became a market. So Borough Market actually predates London. And the fording across the river that became London Bridge also sort of was the basis of why when the Romans came, they decided to found a city on that spot because it was just handy, you know, logistically. Because the Thames is navigable, um, which is very, very critical to its history, uh, they were also easy, e- very able easily to import, you know, food. I mean, the Romans were very miserable when they went north because, you know, they're used to lovely Mediterranean climes and kind of wine and olive oil and all this kind of stuff. And suddenly they're stuck in this hideous, you know, kind of Game of Thrones-like outpost. And um, to cheer themselves up, you know, they were importing food of the Mediterranean to London. Uh, sort of boats sailing up the Thames. So Tacitus is already, you know, describing London you know, something like AD 45 or something, he's writing about London as a great uh, place of trade. You know, so London has always, from the very beginning, been a trading post and a, a place where trade is, you know, can easily take place, both because of the, you know, the geography, but also because it's it's always been, you know, if you like, either part of an empire or the capital of an empire. So it's there from the start. So how did that develop around with, with the, the concept of food in mind? How did that develop? How did in the rural communities outside of London, mm. what was there? Was there agriculture? Was there farming? Or yes, or not I yet? mean the, the Romans were great farmers, and and one of the fascinating things that I discovered when I you know wrote Hungry City and when I was really sort of thinking for the first time about what the relationship between food and cities is is that you realise that cities, you know, in the sort of traditional architectural sense of being urban lumps, shall we say, yes. you know, kind of conglomerations of buildings, they don't feed themselves. You know, what, what feeds them is the countryside that's just outside the city. So all early cities, including London and including the first cities ever built, which were in ancient Mesopotamia, are what we would now call city-states, which is to say small urban blobs surrounded by a rural hinterland. And, you know, the farm feeds the city. Um, and actually, you know, many archaeologists have made entire careers kind of arguing about whether farming or cities came first. But the point is that they co-evolved. Yeah. You, the only way you can feed a city is by farming. So before agriculture, there were no cities. People sure. hunted and gathered. They wandered around following the food. Right. So when you think of a city now, um, I mean, and this is one of the things you alluded to at the beginning we live in cities and we think of ourselves as urban, but actually, you know, well, we're both drinking a cup of tea. Where did that tea come from? Builders tea, I hate Builders, to absolutely. Yes. Property. None of this <laughs> none of this peppermint nonsense. Property. Um, you know, I mean it came from India. It came from a of a from a hillside in India. So that connection, even though it's not visible to us, is still there. And I mean, London is a particularly interesting city in that respect because it very, very early on, because of its very um, propitious geographical location, it had a massive effect on the local hinterland. So, for example, by um, the 13th century, the um, the feeding of London completely dominated the economy of the whole of the southeast of England. You know, so from very early on, in other words, you know, all the farms around, all the orchards, etc., they were all mostly, you know, the sort of the key keyed up to feed London. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think as I say, it, it's I, I often find it very interesting to compare 
London and Paris because, you know, I mean, well, you've got the sort of Dickensian title of Tale of Two Cities sort of thing. But I mean, the very different way those two cities have evolved is very much to do with geography because whereas London was always a free trade city because the Thames is navigable. So by the ninth century, for example, we were importing a lot of our grain from the Baltic. You know, so, yes. I mean, from the Ukraine, believe it or not, uh-huh. you know, so grain comes from Ukraine, goes up the Volga River, gets traded at Danzig, and then comes around and is is eaten by us um, from the ninth century, you know. So, again, another very interesting thing is, you know, the concept of food miles, which is was invented by Professor Tim Lang at City University, which is just literally a measure of how far is your food travel before you eat it. You know, it's not a modern thing, interestingly, you know, because we tend to think, I mean, and of course now it is a very dominant thing because as we know, a lot of our food comes from all over the world, thousands of miles away, but it's not new. Mm. So because Paris didn't have a navigable river in the Seine, they had to source their food much more locally than going further yes. abroad? Well, th- I mean, you know, without wishing to sort of sound too crude about it, they had a re- revolution and we didn't yes. go figure. Yeah. So so there's an absolutely extraordinary book. It's actually longer than The Lord of the Rings, but 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 very, very readable, called Provisioning the City. And it's actually written by an American academic called Stephen Kaplan. And it's about how difficult it was to feed a city like Paris because they couldn't import their food from overseas because the Seine is not navigable by ocean-going ships because it's about 160 kilometres of windy, sluggish, creek-like river to the sea. So, So instead of just bringing it in from somewhere else, which we've always done in London, the Parisians, actually the king, was called the baker of last resort, and he was responsible for feeding the people. And he was the head of a huge pyramid of, called the Grain Police, whose job it was to go out into the countryside and, you know, at musket point, extract whatever grain the city needed to feed it. So it's highly centralised. It's, if you like, mercantilist in sort of modern economic terminology. And, and it's politically very, very um, dodgy because if there's a bad harvest, which there was roughly one in every three... There's not enough food to go around and the king is responsible and he can't just import emergency food from somewhere else. So there was, it, was a, it was a real problem. Uh, that's, that's fascinating for a couple of, couple of reasons. First of all, because we in this country always laugh when the, uh, the farmers throw their toys out the pram and go, and go on strike. And that, I guess, plays back to those times when they had this important role to play in feed, feeding the city. And mm. so they had a big, mm. big role to play in the state. Yes, and their their relationship, Parisians and French relationship yeah. with food per se, because yeah. it's food they're creating, their own food culture. Well, I mean, th- there's so much to say in this. I mean, I recently went to Rangis, which is the main uh, wholesale market outside Paris that still feeds Paris, you know, today. So they have a very centralised food system, which is good and bad. You know, it's good in the sense that, well, I'd quite like it if London had a place like Rangis, it's extraordinary. But it's bad in that, you know, if that food um, is threatened in any way, then the whole system collapses. But what's interesting is that critically, Adam Smith, who travelled to France, you know, just before the revolution, actually, and he met the so-called physiocrats, who were the, uh, the economists who were trying to work out how to free up the trade because it was so... Um, as Stephen Kaplan explains in this amazing book, it was so atrophied and there was such a black market, you know, undercutting everything. And I mean, you know, the, the big lesson to take away from it is that you can't really control food. 
you know, people will find a way of kind of getting around the edges. So they recognised it was a very uh, imperfect system and all sorts of ancient regulations that needed to be got out of the way. Adam Smith goes to talk to them. And one of them has come up with the idea, Francis de Quesnay, I'm probably not pronouncing that very well, but anyway, he comes up with the idea of free trade, which Adam Smith takes from him. So he's trying to free up trade outside Paris. And Adam Smith runs with the idea and he actually compares London and Paris and sort of says, well, the physiocrats want to keep all all the food trade localized and focused on Paris, whereas the real thing to do is to take this idea of free trade and then go global with it. So he that he that's when he's formulating the ideas that are going to turn into the wealth of nations. You know, so if you like the the whole concept of free trade, which is very I mean, I often say, I mean I often when I'm lecturing, I often put up a, an image of the Seine and an image of the Thames, you know, sort of in pre-industrial days, and I ask people to tell me the difference. The difference is that the Seine is full of river barges. And the Thames is full of ocean-going vessels. And I often say this explains Brexit. Because, you know, nothing explains Brexit, of course. But anyway, sorry, I know you're never going to have to delete the whole... But anyway, but, but it actually does, because the fact that London and, and obviously the whole British Isles were, you know, they were importing food from all over the place. You know, it was a very maritime nation. We established later an empire, you know, which is all very dodgy to do with sugar, etc. But, I mean, the idea that you can always get your food in from somewhere else. There's always someone else to do a deal with is very, very much behind, you know, if you like the Brexit thinking. We're kind of, you know, we're strong enough on our own because we can be global. It really comes, I think, from the geography, you know, and the French protectionist thing, you know, the instinct to sort of, you know, to be mercantilist and sort of be protectionist and so on, which is what the real free traders object to about the EU, by the way, is that it's too protectionist, Sorry, getting too political and controversial yeah. now. But anyway, but, you know, it, anyway, it comes from the geography. And it's about, it's through food again. You know, can you feed yourself or can't you feed yourself then leads up to a whole political philosophy, to a whole approach to economics, a mindset. You know, I mean, it's so powerful, I yeah, think. Yeah, and, and utterly fascinating. So just skipping back um, to, to our shores and back, back to London again. So pre-industrial, pre-industrialised London, Britain, London was still importing or bringing food in. So cows were walking through the yes. street, sheeps were being driven into yeah. the streets of London. I mean, you still got this wonderful, you explain it very beautifully in the book and on, on your presentation, the, the street names of London. Just, yes. just talk us through some of how that this worked. Was, um, I mean, I, this is really almost my favourite thing about looking at the relationship between food and cities is that if you look at the, the maps, the street maps of any city founded before the railways, you will see, as you rightly say, the names of food. So you'll see Cow Street, Fish Street, Bread Lane, Corn Corn Lane. It's because, as you say, if you think about what it took to feed a city in the pre-industrial era, the food had to not only be grown, so this is the city-state thing of where's the countryside that's feeding you, but also it had to be got in physically into the city. This is difficult. So I've been talking quite a lot about how London... It was, it was much easier if you had a navigable river because you just sail it in and it was about 50 times cheaper to transport food over water than over land. If, like Paris, you're somewhat landbound, then it's very, very tricky. The grain is tricky because, you know, it's very heavy and bulky in relation to its value. So, again, a very key person called Johann von Thunen, who was a, a, a German geographer and landowner, 
he wrote a book in 1826 called The Isolated State about how the productive hinterland of a city would naturally evolve. And he says, you know, you would have fruit and veg in the in the fringes of the city because three reasons, actually. One, obviously, fruit and veg are very difficult to transport long distances. Uh-huh. They go off. go off. So it has to be near the city. Second, you can make very good use of night soil, which is the euphemistic word for human and animal manure, which yeah. is very carefully say, collected. Uh, we have an explicit rating on this podcast, so you can use the, the SHIT okay, word fantastic. if you wish. So, so human and animal shit. <laughs> yes. Very carefully and lovingly conserved you know, and, and put in lay stalls in the in the city fringes to sort of, you know, to become compost and uh-huh. then dump directly on your fruit and veg. Marvellous. And the third thing is fruit and veg were a luxury food. So, you know, the farmers could charge high enough rents to be able to afford the rent near the city. So fruit and veg. Then a band of grain production because it, you can't grow the grain too far away from the city because you just can't physically get it in. It's too heavy and bulky. Over about 20 miles, it becomes uneconomic. So that limits the size to which the city can grow. The outer ring is animals because the animals can walk into the city. They provide their own transport. And I say, when I, when I clocked this, I just thought, of course, you know, if you go somewhere like Smithfield and, uh, well, explicitly Smithfield, you know, St. John's Street, the way it yes. kind of winds. It's always struck me. I mean, for years, sub- subconsciously, I thought it's a really weird shape, St. John's Street. You know, it's very wide, very windy and so on didn't occur to me duh i don't know why but you know now it's so obvious to me it's shaped like a herd of cows basically the way they walk because that's where <laughs> they were all coming yeah. in from i mean a lot of london's uh, uh beef as it is today was was raised in places like scotland and wales you know long long way away where there's lots of cheap fantastic grass and then the animals would walk you know i mean the whole of europe was covered in drovers roads you know separate from roads that you know people went on just animals traveling to market and they would come and they'd be they they would lose half their body weight on the walk because it's a long way from scotland if you're a cow you know (laughs) so they would stop in islington and they there would be specialist feed you know um dairies uh, mixed with fattening fattening pens and they would eat they'd be fed up on um spent grain from the breweries and they'd spend several months there getting fattened up again and then they make their final, you know, fateful walk, as it were, down St. John Street. And, you know, it is literally sort of shaped, as I say, like a herd of cows. Yeah. I mean, and then they'd come to the market, be sold live. Obviously, it was a livestock market and then slaughtered around the market. So there are 184 unregulated slaughterhouses around Smithfield. And there's an amazing description of it, actually, in Charles Dickens, uh, Oliver Twist. Oliver goes through Smithfield and he just describes the bleating and the blaring and the stomping and the noise and the heat and the mooing and the buying and the, you know, the mud and the whatever, the, the chaos generally. And and just also, you know, the 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 sight of, you know, re- recently killed carcasses hanging up and bleeding onto the pavement. Well, there wouldn't have been pavement, you know, onto the, into the mud. And you just get a sense that... You know, if you lived in the city before the railways, you 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 could not have not known where your food came from. Yes. You know, because there it was in front of you. You know, sort of moving and bleating and yeah. And we'll come on to that concept in in, in a bit. Obviously, um, that disengagement, if you like, mm. from with people from rural and rural concepts and where their food were coming was coming from. Today, you, you say we'll, we'll come on to that in a bit. Going into the uh, outer London boxes to buy your boxed up mm. ready meals. So. 
that's how you can trace where the food was coming into London by just looking at the street names. Yes, example, exactly, street, exactly. I think fish was only available on, a, or you should buy it on a Friday. Yes, yeah. and a, a Friday street. So, Friday so street, these bun, yeah. names still exist. So, for example, the Bank of England is on a street called Poultry, which, when you think about it, that's chickens. You know, it's a bit of a giveaway. Yeah, and the reason it's called that is because a lot of the um, the poultry for London was actually reared in East Anglia, again, where it still is. Uh, and in fact, that's another thing to say about food is that the geography very often lingers a long time so markets last for thousands of years in the same place etc because if you think about it, it's very difficult to move a food you know the food has to keep coming all the time so that's not something that's easy to move but they came the the little the turkeys and geese would sort of waddle in into the city with little shoes on their feet a little Aww. leather shoes to protect their feet and they would come to the eastern side of cheapside which was london's main market and that's where they were sold hence the name poultry so that's why that street has that name. Friday Street, as you rightly say, is where you went to buy your fish on a Friday because meat was forbidden for many you know, days in the year. And I mean, when I was growing up, we always had fish on a Friday. Was it's just, it was just yeah. a thing, yes. you know. Fish Street is still there. Billingsgate, of course, is, it was the main fish market. And that remained on that site until 1984, which again is astonishing when you think about it. Remarkable. In fact, Smithfield... Um, is literally now about to move, which I find very sad because it's been there since the ninth century. And I happen to think that having live food markets in the middle of the city sort of gives it a sort of soul and a kind of sense of connection to, you know, the places that sustain it that yeah. is very sad to lose. Yeah. Mm. But as you're saying that, dealing with live livestock and choosing a product in the your livestock in the market takes me back to when I was in Morocco a few years ago with my wife and we went to one of the uh, the open air markets, the souks or whatever they call them, and there was poultry and all sorts of animals running around and yeah. there was people were ordering, I'll have that one. Yeah. And in front of your very eyes, they would slaughter they would yeah. slaughter them in front of your eyes. Yeah, yeah. They would defeathering them up, yeah. whatever the word is, <laughs> and then they'd hand it over. Yeah. And yeah. I, me and my wife are sort of gagging and turning away yes. but that is obviously how it was well, done and you can't get it fresher no no that you can't and actually i mean a lot and it's the same as you say i mean in various places in the mediterranean still in europe that you know in a traditional food culture you wouldn't buy a chicken unless you'd seen it alive first you know you wouldn't trust it you know what's happened to it how long has it been dead for sort of thing so i mean it is very very interesting how recent when you, when you talk about history a lot, you know, 200 years seems quite it's recent. recent. But, you know, yeah. it is recent. Yes. I mean, it's certainly the case that, you know, again, in the mid-20th century still, an ordinary housewife would have been expected to be able to sort of, you know, kill, gut and pluck. Pluck, that was the word I was looking yeah. for. Yeah, yeah. Her, her, her own chicken. I mean, it was just part of what you did. It was a part of everyday life. And in fact, if you look at photographs of butchers' shops in the 1950s and 60s, you know, you got the whole rabbit, the whole chicken kind of hanging up outside. I mean, people wouldn't deal with that now. They're kind of, mm. you know, we don't like to see the reality of what we're eating. And it feels still quite recently that you were seeing pheasants and things hung up in butcher shops yeah. Um, yeah. for Christmas. You yes, know. absolutely. I'm not so sure you see that much yeah, anymore. Pig's heads. And pig's heads, with yeah. With an apple in their mouth. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think this is this is where it gets very interesting. I mean, I know you wanted to come on to talk about the sort of our sort of, you know, post-industrial, very distanced mm. relationship with food. You know, I think, I, I don't go as far as to say, if you eat meat, you should kill the animal. I, I'm very happy to have farmers and butchers doing all that hard work for me. But I do think you should respect the animal. And I don't think you should run away from the fact that it is an animal. You know, and of course, we all need to be eating a lot less meat now because of climate change and so on, you probably know about. Which I think is amazing because I, I really think, you know, if you eat meat, it should it should be a luxury and... 
we should pay a lot for it and the animal should have a good life and a good death. And I mean, again, there's a huge area to talk about. But, you know, the idea of cheap meat for me is, I mean, I began Hungry City with it, as you remember, you know, just, you know, the amount of meat that we eat and the, the, the little that we pay for it and these animals being raised in appalling yeah. conditions on grain that we could be eating directly, you know, so it really is cruel and it makes no sense on, mm. on so many levels. So... Well, let's just jump into our TARDIS and see if we can ca- <laughs> catch up that time sort of mm. period from pre-industrial revolution, if you like, to post, you know, post-railway. Mm. Because that, I think, is the period in time where cities grow exponentially yes. when food becomes readily available. Yes. You know, the, the, the railways are bringing in livestock and the, then you've got cars. So how does that suddenly explode cities? Well, I often say that, you know, the railways were the moment when cities were emancipated from geography. I've been talking about the constraints of the size to which a city could grow because it couldn't feed itself, you know. So, I mean, Rome is the classic example. It was the only ancient city that grew, you know, to the size of a modern city. It had a million citizens precisely because it had access to the sea and it just imported its food from all over the Mediterranean. But no other city could have done that at the same time. So cities were constrained. I mean, Paris had a revolution because it couldn't feed itself. You know, I mean, it really was a massive, massive thing. When the railways come, of course, they solve overnight, literally, the problem that had always been, you know, how do you get the food in in an edible condition? You know, so instead of poor old cows having to walk in from Scotland, you know, you you kill the still rather poor old cow in Scotland. Yes. (laughs) Shove it on a train. And the the really interesting thing is that this was the... uh, well, as I say, it, it released cities from this, this, this constraint of geography and you, you see immediately an extraordinary explosion in the size of cities. So London, you know, in, in 1840, it's not much bigger than the medieval city because it couldn't be, you know, it had got as big as it could be. You know, by 1920, it's, it's a splurging metropolis of, you know, three, three million people or something. So it literally does explode. And at the same time, the agricultural hinterland explodes. So if you go back to grain again, I mean, I didn't explain properly earlier on because I'm trying to cram my 12-hour lecture series into a... I I, I appreciate we were going through the whole of history. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the thing about food is that it does include everything. That's why it's such a fascinating way to think. But going back to the grain thing, so what I didn't explain, I did say that agriculture and cities co-evolved. What I didn't make very clear is that grain, therefore, is the food of cities. And cities have always existed on grain. It's the only food we've ever discovered that can feed cities. Now that we eat a lot of meat, we're still eating grain, but we're just passing it through an animal first in a very efficient way. So using... Yeah, so X so amount more than we ten would, times, ten times, ten more. times. Yeah, so so if you eat an industrially produced animal, mm-hmm. so either a chicken or beef, or whatever, that's grown up in a, in a factory farm or a CAFO concentrated animal feeding operation, it's been eating grain that you could have eaten directly, mm-hmm. and that means ten fewer people can be fed. So it doesn't make much sense. But anyway, grain, as I was saying, was the was the defining factor on how big a city could grow. Uh, geography constrained that. When you think about what the railways did, um, they not only made it easier to sort of get the food physically into the city, but they also opened up vast swathes of farmland that had previously been inaccessible. So very notably, the American Midwest, you know, which was basically grassland, you know, being nibbled by 60 million or so bison. And by the way, also cohabited by Native Americans. 
this was converted in the space of less than 10 years into grain production. The bison were slaughtered. The Native Americans were told politely to F off. Um, none of it's good. And the cowboys, were, you know, all of those great cattle drives, you know, the cowboys would come up from Texas, the Texas Longhorn, you know, up into um, mostly Chicago, which became the meatpacking meat centre of the world, exactly. Yeah. And then the brilliant, you know, if you, if you like food logistics, as it were, it, it's no accident, by the way, that the body that represents supermarkets in this country and grocers in general is called the Institute of Grocery Distribution. And it's all about moving the food around. So uh, a meatpacker in Chicago by the name of Gustavus Swift, he, he had all this cheap meat that he was feeding up on grain. He needed to get it to the East Coast, which is where all hungry cities were. And that's a thousand miles away. How did he do it? He invented what we would now call the chill chain. So he basically built a dedicated railway. He cut lake ice in the winter and stored it in ice houses all along the way. He hung his slaughtered so-called dressed beef vertically in the carriages and he hung slabs of ice at both ends and let air freely pass through the carriage. So basically the meat was effectively chilled. And that's Genius. how he got it in an edible state to New York. And then he undercut the local butchers, you know, until they went out of business, which is, you know... Seems to be a common theme there. Lovely modern, trick day, like Starbucks yeah, have done. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So that was the beginning of what we would call now call, the, the, you know, the modern food logistics. So we've got these huge plains uh, out in Central America being completely, well, not laid to waste, laid to, laid to grain. Yeah, and, uh, so, and then laid to waste, and then, actually. And then laid, yes, waste, laid yes. to waste because there was too much grain. There was a surplus of grain worldwide at there one point. There was a surplus of grain plus the soil was not. I mean, so you can't just convert permanent, you know, perennial grassland into monocultural annual grain production mm. without destroying the soil. So they destroyed the soil. The famous dust storms of the 1930s, basically there was a, a series of dry, dry-ish um, seasons and all the topsoil of the Midwest blew away. You know, so, so it was a, the beginning actually of the organic movement um, in farming, which was basically saying we can't farm like this. You know, so I mean, a very important thing to say, actually, is that cheap food doesn't exist. We and, and when you think about it, it shouldn't exist anyway, because food is the most important thing in our lives. And it's also living things that we kill in order to live. So if you cheapen food, you cheapen life. So we've created this illusion of cheap food by externalizing its true costs. So, for example, by turning the Midwest into a dust bowl, by, you know, exterminating entire populations of bison by you know exodusing local native americans um and and whenever whenever you pay very little for food there is a story like that behind it that's a landscape that's being denuded there's water that's being depleted that soil that's being eroded there's rainforest that's being cut I was down say rainforest for palm oil i mean for... one of the biggest one of the biggest problems is is the loss of rainforest obviously and the, the way we produce food now is you know contributing something like 30 percent to greenhouse gas emissions it's a massive massive thing so you know i i always say i mean if if because when you make the argument that we should pay more for food which i really believe people say well that will push more people into food poverty and i go yeah but that's the problem how can we be the fifth biggest economy in the world and have people who can't afford to eat well? That's the problem. You know, don't, don't sort of, as it were, bring everything down to the lowest commerce denominator and sort of say, well, we've got to have, I can use that word again, you know, shit cheap food because people are poor. Yeah. Surely the problem is 
why do we have poor people? You know, this is this is what advanced capitalism leads to, I'm afraid. I mean, without wishing to get into um, another... No, well, it's inextricably linked, isn't yeah, it, yeah, to, yeah. To, to, to politics. And yeah. I was going to come on at the end of the conversation mm. to ask how the concepts have been... <laughs> taken on board by those in well presumably they have it but well not in this country not, not, not in this country no, no, significantly no. but we have a free trade attitude so as i say the mentality here is about well the brexit mentality yes. is get it cheap you know chlorinated chicken in a in a nutshell so we're not quite we haven't built our city up 100 percent yet we're still sort of just entered the uh yes the age of the railway so we've, and got, the, the we've got the chill chain we've got, we've got the chill, chill chain. chain we've got m- the beginnings of modern food logistics mm-hmm. and we've got the beginnings of what is known in the trade as consolidation in the food industry so basically if you think about the way a medieval city was fed it all took place in an open market it was visible, very importantly, because they recognised that you know food was the most important thing. So no nobody could be allowed to get a monopoly of food. So you had to trade in the market. It was illegal to trade outside it, and you had to have a sort of designated stall. There were things like the assize of bread. So that's uh, legal statutes determining the size of a loaf and how much you can charge for it, because bread was you know grain. Bread is the food of of, of cities. So all of that was the case. And if you think about it, it's like a kind of um, a lattice of small-scale producers and small-scale customers, you know, sort of all interacting together. It's like, actually, a sort of managed version of an ideal free market. When the railways come in, another three critical things happen when the railways come in. One is cities are emancipated from geography. Two, food becomes invisible. Because instead of moving and bleating outside your window, it's being slaughtered a thousand miles away and coming in at night on a train. And third, politicians, which up to that point had been responsible for feeding the city, wipe their collective brows and think, thank goodness we don't have to do that anymore. And they hand over to the food industry. So the food industry becomes the people who feed us, if you like. They're now in control of the whole chain. They're in control. They're in control. And of course, that's a disaster because very, very rapidly they consolidate. So, for example, you know, the meat packers in America, who, as I was just explaining, were undercutting local butchers in places like New York. They then got, got a stranglehold of the meat trade in the whole of America. And then they did deals with, you know, Brazilian meat packers who were doing a similar thing in Brazil. And now, you know, there's about three or four companies that have something like 70 or 80 percent of control of global meat trade. You know, that, and that's typical all over food. Of course, it's typical in corporate, the corporate world in general. But, but food's a very particular one because actually it has such a profound effect on our health, on the planet's health and so on. But if the politicians aren't in control of it, well, how do we actually change, you know? So consolidation, monopoly, and then the development, as I was explaining, of this this thing called food logistics, you know, which is moving the food around. Of course, the only people who have the infrastructure, who have the ability to do this, are the food producers. So instead of the city controlling the market and food coming into the centre of the city and being sort of bought and sold under everybody's gaze, what happens is you get the evolution of -of out-of-town supermarkets, Because if you think about it, if you're producing vast amounts of cheap meat or cheap grain or whatever it is, 
the last thing you want to do is, you know, take it into into some higgledy-piggledy medieval set of streets, you know, and dump it off, you know, at Mrs. Jones the baker. And you, you want a sort of a means of interfacing with the public that matches the scale at which you are operating. And that's what a supermarket is. So, you know, whoever Tesco's, Walmart, whoever they now are, drive the lorries. I mean, you know, it's incredible if you actually go to the Institute of Grocery Distribution, as I did for my sins, and actually look at the maps that, you know, where, where you know, all the major warehouses is and how our food actually travels around, it makes no apparent sense, but it makes economic sense. To the producers. To the producers. Yeah. Well, to the suppliers, actually, not necessarily to the producers, because that's the other thing to say about monopolistic control of food is that the, the suppliers i.e. the supermarkets get, take all the profits and not the producers. Farmers have but always they, been poor. But they're in control of many of the producers, aren't they? Yes, I mean, and that's the problem. I mean, that's, you know, that's the problem with a monopolistic control of yeah. food is that the, the producers get squeezed, and they always have been squeezed, by the way. I mean, you know, if you want to know why Amsterdam is as beautiful as it is, it's because the Dutch control the Baltic grain trade. Because for some weird reason, the Poles had a law that forbade Polish grain merchants from exporting their grain. So the Dutch just came in and did it for them. Poles stayed poor. Um, the Dutch got rich. That was called the mother trade. That was the basis of the Dutch golden age. So we, we have many historic examples of why feeding people is, is, is good business. Mm. But uh, producing food, ironically, for people is not good business unless you can sell directly to them, which, of course, is what the farmer's market is it's you know joining the producer directly to the consumer and cutting out the monopolistic middleman called the supermarket but anyway you know most people because you know they food has become peripheral to our lives the family units have broken up most kids would rather be you know on their phones than kind of sitting around table talking to their parents or whatever so food has become peripheralized, it's become cheap, it's become something that we don't really bother to think about. And, you know, with, with modern delivery systems, you know, such as Deliveroo, for example, ironically, we can all behave as though we are medieval kings. We can all sit in our castles, you know, on our laptops and just press a button and lo and behold, on a magic carpet, half an hour later, a pizza shows up or indeed a gourmet meal which we think has been cooked in some restaurant with a logo on it, but actually, as we know, has been cooked in a so-called dark kitchen under a motorway. You know, so, well, maybe as we don't know. You've, you know, you've just put a downer on my last takeaway. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, you know, and this is very, very interesting. This is, I think, what I mean when I talk about not valuing food, not seeing food, you know, expecting it to be cheap. And I mean, the food industry is completely geared up to treat us like medieval kings, you know, to give us as much as we want, as much choice as we want, without having to think about it. I mean, historically, the only people who didn't think about food the whole time were the absolute top of society. Everybody else was obsessed with it, because they kind of had to be, you know, from farmers upwards. So only the very, very rich didn't have to think about food. Now none of us think about food. I mean, that, that is extraordinary if you think about it. Trouble is, it's killing us and destroying the planet. So do you think this is a, a deliberate ploy by the suppliers? Yeah. To, well, to almost brainwash us into thinking, you yeah, know, we're... Totally, totally. I mean, if you're... the top of the tree. Yeah, yeah. And the, uh, everyone wants to be treated like they're the top of the tree. Of course mm. they do. I mean, that's, the, again, the basis of capitalism. You know, we're not citizens anymore. We're customers. And customers are always right. And customers have to be given what they want. And customers have to not lift a finger. And they have to get the best prices. And da -da. I mean, it always makes me laugh. I mean, you know, for example, 
you know, the, the, literally in the, over the last couple of days, you know, the Monopolies and Mergers Commission has refused to allow Asda and Sainsbury's. Yeah. That did make me laugh before I came to see you. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, and their argument is, oh, that could push prices, prices up, up for customers. Yeah. What about the poor producers? Uh-huh. Nobody ever thinks about them. What about the poor farmers who are going to go out of business? Because the bigger the supplier, the more they can screw the producers down. So most food in this country is, is, is literally produced, you know, at or below cost. I'm not entirely sure how they came to that conclusion that the prices would go up because it might go up initially, but I would have thought eventually economies of scale would. would yeah, I mean, down. I think the argument was that you know, again, it's it's anti-monopolistic, isn't mm, it? You know, yeah. I mean, well, we've seen what's happened, but actually, you're right. I mean, because in this country, anyway, our main preoccupation with food is is that it should be cheap, over and above everything else. That's obviously what the food industry strives to produce. And they do all sorts of tricks to, well, we've seen what happened when Aldi and Lidl came in. And that's been very interesting, actually. Um, I mean, the government debated that. And then they said, oh, yeah, let's bring them in because, you know, that's that's better, more competition, which is good. More competition is always good in a sort of free trade capitalistic mentality. I was thinking, yeah, but what about the poor small scale grocers who are not supermarkets, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Jones down the road, who are still desperately trying to run a fruit and veg business. That What about competition with them? You know, nobody thought about them. And, you know, I, I just, I mean, as I say, I think cheap food doesn't exist. And I think if you have a society based on the fact that it does exist, you've got skeletons in cupboards everywhere. You know, I mean, we know that, for example, sorry to depress all your listeners, I'll probably all stop listening by now anyway, but, you know, I mean, you have a prawn sandwich, you know, for £3.50, where do those prawns come from? We know from, you know, Guardian exposures going back 10 years now, there's slavery in the, in the tri-prawn fishing trade. People are literally at gunpoint, they're, they're sort of press ganged onto boats and then made to work and they're killed if they try to leave. I mean, you know, so cheap food can't, just think, you only have to start growing your own food, as I do on my roof out here, weirdly, to realise that cheap food can't exist because, you know, you realise how much, how much, I mean, the plants just grow. They're fantastic. I mean, you know, but, you know, the, the love and the care and the attention that you have to give them and, you know, the good soil and the water and the packaging and so on. And, you know, for me, there's nothing more beautiful than working with food and there's nothing more beautiful than feeding people if people value food. You know, it's a wonderful employer. Yeah. So um, it's not so much the food we've lost our relationship with, it's the origins of the food yeah. and the, the production yeah. process of the food, whether it's livestock or, yeah. or arable. If I you mean, like. as I said at the beginning of Hungry City, you know, you, you, you buy a chicken for three quid. That, that, that should ring alarm bells, you know, because how is it possible to raise a bird you know, a living creature and give it a good life and a good death for three quid. Oh, turns out it's not. In fact, you know, I mean, I if I do eat chicken, which I do very rarely now, it's a luxury for me and it costs me 15 quid and I get it from the small-scale organic producers who I know do it right. And the chickens are running around and they, they've got properly developed leg muscles and, you know, they're happy chickens. I mean, you know, it's it's... So to me... As I say, that the tragedy is that we've got a society where advanced capitalism isn't working, basically. A lot of people on, you know, zero hours contracts, you know, working below the living wage. I mean, let's not even start talking about what it costs to live in London. And they can't afford to pay enough for food. So, so food is kept artificially cheap 
to make that possible. But it, it's two wrongs not making a right to me. So this disconnect that was developed between urbanites, Londoners in our case, and the rural community and the food production and, and food. I don't think we lost our love of food. No. Because we love going out to eat. We love our takeaways. Yeah, we love yeah, stuffing yeah. our faces with yeah. it all the time. Well, we, we do, frankly, don't we? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm probably yeah, no yeah, different yeah. to anyone else. So we, we, we love all that, but we, we don't love the consequences of that. So how has that caused problems in the city, per se? And what are, what are the potential um, ways around that? Because obviously, I think you developed a concept. Sitopia. Sitopia. Food place. Food, yes. food place. I mean, I will say that you know, I'm not, you know, kind of, as it were, sweepingly saying everyone in London doesn't understand food. In fact, I mean, lots of people in London are real proper foodies and really care about food. There's a, there's a counter-revolution happening, which makes me very happy, where people are really caring about provenance and they're sort of paying more for food deliberately and they want to know who's produced it and how. So that's that's fantastic. But it's not the prevailing food culture. Um, for me, I mean, when I was researching Hungry City, I guess one of the things that I realised, you know, as a series of light bulb moments it just kept coming and coming and coming is how profoundly our lives are shaped by food without us really realizing it you know so i mean obviously you and i can look down and go oops that bit shouldn't be sticking out <laughs> steady mm, steady on the chocolate sadly but you know well me more than you but anyway to be fair but you know food is in the shapes of the streets that we walk up and down every day it's in the way we think. It's in the order of the day. You know, the sort of our circadian rhythms, you know, sort of are all geared up towards when our digestive systems are ready to eat. You know, our brains evolve because we learn how to cook. You know, the, the landscapes we create are shaped by food, you know, either because we farm them or because we leave them alone, you know, because they're not very easy to farm and therefore they become wilderness. You know, economies are shaped by food. Our politics are shaped by food. Our philosophies are shaped by... I mean, it's just everywhere. And our health system now as well is struggling. Totally. I mean, you know, a diet-related disease is going to bring the, the NHS down. I mean, it's the biggest killer now. It's gone way beyond tobacco. Yeah. Um, all the beds are too small. Um, you know, and and I think, you know, when you get to the point where the beds are too small, it's, it is time to sort of put the chocolate in the cupboard and throw the key away. Um, but anyway, this is a very important thing to say as well. It's not individual people's fault that they're getting fat. It's actually, we live in an obesogenic society, and this has been proven, you know. I mean, so it's, it's not to do with willpower, it's just to do with if you live in a poor area where there's no access to fresh food, of course, you know, you're, you're just going to eat this food which, which your body can't digest properly, highly processed food, lots of fat and sugar in it. Of course, our hunter-gatherer brains are programmed to eat this stuff, but our bodies can't cope. But even if you live in an area and, you, and you've got the wherewithal financially to eat, properly what would say properly you know healthy well-produced nutritious food you still um you know got big pressures whether you're you know running around in the city from job to job yeah. from call to call getting food on the hoof exactly i mean i think you know so this is so this is where my concept of cytopia comes in i after researching hungry city i, I guess i realized how profoundly our lives were shaped by food not just our bodies but everything about the way we live and i thought you know Food is a wonderful lens through which to look at all sorts of related aspects of our lives and, and to decide or to wonder whether they're good or bad, they're working or not. So it's a multidisciplinary tool, if you like, uh, to question how we live. And I was researching utopia because in the last chapter I wanted to bring... So Hungry City, I didn't even explain, 
It follows the journey of food through the city from the land to the road to the market, the kitchen, the table, the waste dump and so on. And in the last chapter, I wanted to sort of wrap all that up and basically say, okay, you know, what do we do with all this information about how food shapes our lives in different ways? And so I was researching utopia because utopia is, if you like, our greatest tradition of thinking in a multidisciplinary way about how we should live. And I am, of course, an architect. So the question of how we should live is ultimately what all this is about for me. And um, and then I read that utopia is a joke word that can neither mean a good place or no place. So the U in utopia either comes from the Greek word EU, oi, I think it's pronounced, which means good, yes. or OU, which means no. I just remember being so floored by that because I thought, here is our greatest tradition of thinking about how we should live and it can't exist. It doesn't exist. And 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 but then I then I went on to think, but it's amazing how, how much utopians talk about food. Because actually, if you're going to try and design an ideal society, how that society is going to feed itself is is a pretty major question. So I thought, well, maybe I can invent a word that isn't utopia, but actually has all the elements of utopia in it through food. And then I phoned up some ancient Greek friends of mine. Actually, they weren't ancient Greek, but they were ancient Greek, <laughs> Greek academics. They are ancient Greek <laughs> leading uh, academics. And I said, if I was a Greek and I wanted a word that meant food place, what would that be? And they said, well, sitos was the Greek word for food, S-I-T-O-S. And topos means place, obviously, which is the topos part of utopia. So strictly speaking, it would be sitotopia, but that sounds ridiculous and no self-respecting Greek would have put up with that. So why don't you just call it sitopia? So that's how the word came about. And I just, it was a very, very much an afterthought at the end of Hungry City, but that's what my new book's called. <laughs> that's fine. Well, um, yeah. <laughs> because actually, you know, for me, thinking through food is is a fantastically powerful thing to do. And you can literally go from your slightly chubby tummy to climate change, to late capitalism and why it's not working, to mass extinction. You know, it's all connected through food. So it's just super, super powerful and very important but it's also about life and love and joy and sharing and frankly it's, it's all of those things yeah and, and individual subcultures if you like within different communities whether it's a religious meal i think you mentioned in the book and yeah. it's just been the jewish festival of passover yes. so, you got, so you got this seder night which yes. we have you share different foods and i think you spoke about salt water and the egg and the, you know, yeah the shank I, that and all was those extraordinary things, yeah which is yeah. that's that's another podcast completely for another, <laughs> another day but then you got the christmas sharing haven't you yes. you know that the turkey i don't know quite where that, that came well, from. well America. <laughs> yeah, where else? <laughs> Is where that came from. Um, but, uh, but, but but Jewish people, Italian people, yeah. they love the family gatherings. They love gathering around a plate of, you know, homemade, as mama used to make, type it's of cuisine. It's really, really important. And we humans evolve through the sharing of food. You know, I've written about this a lot in my new book as well. You know, We were hunter-gatherers, you know. The women gathered tubers, the men went hunting, and then everyone came together. It was just like kind of, you know, potluck dinners. What have you got? What have you got? You know, and it all happened around the campfire. And that's how we learned to share. That's how we learned to speak. That's how we learned to trust. Because it's like, you hunt and I'll cook. But, you know, you better give me a nice leg of that antelope yeah. if what you get it. What am I going to make with that? <laughs> exactly. So actually nothing very much has changed extraordinarily. I mean, we, th that's still in our st domestic structures now. So that's really interesting. 
But as you say, in traditional cultures where the family is still important, and and, and I, I would go as far as to say where the family is important in any culture, food is still important, yes. and vice versa. They go together. And as you rightly say, I mean, I love it when I go to Greek friends or Jewish friends or Italian friends or Indian friends, and it's just like, yeah, of course, 20 of us are going to get together. We're going to have a huge meal. We're going to cook all day. And then we're just going to sit around and we're going to talk. And that, to me, is the essence of a good life. And in fact, my formula for a good society is one in which everyone eats well. Because everything is bound up with that, I think. So what is the... I mean, how do you get people to change their their ideas? There, Because obviously, not everybody has mm. the um, the perfect family mm. uh, disposition. Yeah, I know. I know. You know, the, the 2.2, whatever yes. it is nowadays. Yeah. Um, you know, there's lots of single parents. There's yeah, lots yeah. There's lots of normal families who yeah. don't even see each other from one day to the next. I mean, I think, you know, and this is this is very much where you begin with food and you end up at the universe, you know, because everything is implied in your question. And it's a really important question. I think we um, have over-evolved as a species. I think we were going down this weird road with technology of thinking everything's got to be faster. Everything's got to be more efficient. Everything's got to be yesterday. Edit the human out. I mean, if you look at what capitalism does, it edits out the human. So basically... I said to you, I think before we started recording, I miss bus conductors. I used to quite like getting on a bus and yeah. having someone who clearly, you know, did comedy at, at night, kind of just carrying on a sort yes. of, uh, you know, that was, it was warming, it was lovely, and you felt very safe, and you were safe, you know. And um, so capitalism edits out the human because the ideal model in capitalism is that you reduce labor cost to zero, and humans are very expensive, and they should be, mm. you know. So we're editing out the human, you know, and, and, and so there's less and less for people to do. Families are fragmenting. I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, the traditional model of the wife stuck at home is ideal either, you know. No. But I do think we need more time in our lives. I think we need more love. I think we need more meaningful stuff to do. You know, and I think we need community. You know, I mean, I really, we're tribal animals. You know, we grew up in tribes and and we need that sense of community. I mean, it's very interesting just now at Easter. I mean, you know, my parents now are dead. I have a very small family anyway. My brother and sister-in-law, who I hope never listen to this podcast and probably won't, they they buggered off to France without telling me. <laughs> you know, so suddenly it's like People Easter. People do listen to this all around the world, <laughs> including France. <laughs> you know, well, I have no problem with them going to France. They do it every year and it's absolutely fine. But they didn't tell me they were going. They, You know, and I was suddenly like, what am I going to do at Easter? And my overwhelming sense is I need to be with people and I need to cook and to share a big meal, you know. Well, you're welcome to come around to us. Well, that's very you know, kind, Steve. Day. I mean, next time I'll, I'll <laughs> give you a call. Obviously. But, you know, and I, I just just rang around and saw who was around. I managed to actually only managed to assemble five people in the end. That was enough. I did get a very, very expensive, very, very happy leg of lamb, which is my cell. You know, I do believe, you know, it, we need to eat good meat because it's part of, of, of a productive organic system. That's a whole other conversation. But it's a celebration. And I just cooked, you know, with great love for these friends. And I that made me feel like I was in a family. That's what I needed. That sort of sense of belonging, of being together, something shared. It's very, very profound. And I think it's tragic that we're evolving a society where that, you know, we don't have time for that. We think we don't have time for that. We think we can't afford that. You know, 
everyone would rather be on their, you know, on their phone sort of texting and liking some, I don't know, cat getting out of a dustbin or whatever it is. <laughs> you know, it, I find it really bizarre. And I, I, I know families are fragmenting, but I also think it's because there are no support structures. You know, we sort of, we don't know where home is anymore. And yeah. I think home's really important. And without wishing to get into a massive long lecture about this, it's very interesting. There's a very interesting international study done about what humans need and what makes them happy. It's really basic stuff, actually. It's just like, you know, being seen, being loved, feeling secure, knowing you've got a roof over your head. You know, it goes back of, to that old uh, hierarchy of needs. Exactly. Pyramid. It's Maslow, Maslow. Exactly. And, um, but, but this study uh, it was really fascinating because what it, just, it, it was in 67 different countries. And what they discovered was that there's a spectrum of, if you like, qualities that people value. Um, the, and, and they're on a sort of, if you like, sort of a, a kind of a tension. So there's a tension between stability and innovation. You know, so just being in the same old village and it's been like this for 500 years, no, that's bad. That's too stable. But then being whiz, whiz, bang, bang, everything's changing every five minutes. That's bad too. So there's a tension there. On the other axis, interestingly, was selfishness and altruism. So I want to do stuff for me, 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 yes, but not to excess. Because also, I want to feel good because I'm helping other people, etc. So what's interesting to me about this is, what are the two things that capitalism is predicated on? Selfishness, because I am the customer, and innovation, constant innovation. So everything in our society, our idea of progress, all, you know, good economic growth is all to do with bringing on 5G, you know. Am I the only one going, do we need 5G? What do we need 5G for? Sorry, do we need... I mean... Well, it's so you, you can download a few more films that you, you haven't, <laughs> that you haven't got time to watch quicker. Yeah, I mean it's it's really really weird that there's no mechanism for actually saying, do we want this? Well, it's going to power yeah. those driverless buses right. without it's the conductor, put, without the driver. Yet more yeah. humans out of work. So I find it really curious and bizarre. Anyway, so I think we need economic systems, and I need we need ways of thinking that provide stability and altruism, which are the two things that our current models leave out. So I'm, I'm trying to create a corrective through food. So food is about people, it's about time, it's about sharing, it's about being in a real place. You know, it's all the things that, if you like, modern life is, is taking away from us. And I think through food, we can find those connections again, rebuild communities, rebuild connections with people who produce our food, remake the link between the city and the countryside. I mean, in short, in an overheated, over overcrowded world, we're going to have to relocalize. We're going to have to stop flying every five minutes. We're going to have to start growing our food more locally. We're going to have to eat more seasonally. We're going to have to find ways of having a good life that doesn't involve chucking out our phone every five minutes and getting a new one. And that's about humanity. That's about love. That's about this, sitting across the table. I mean, personally, I mean not necessarily with microphones, this is my favourite thing to do in life, is to sit across a table from somebody interesting and chat, preferably with food. It, it just doesn't get better than that to me. I should have brought some chocolates with. Well, I've got some. I, I'll feed you when we... <laughs> no, uh, no, no. Ch Chomping and talking aren't good companions, <laughs> but I mean, you know, I... But, I, but I, I'm with you on all of that, on, on every single element of that. My question is, and this is probably the burning question that you've probably got in the back of your mind as well. How on earth do you get that to the policymakers that they mm. A, understand it, and B, are in a, in a, 
able to implement any element of that. Yeah, I mean, these, are, it, these are fairly high-level concepts, yeah. a lot of these, yeah, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very, very interesting to me at the moment. I mean, this country has been paralysed and horrified by B-R-E-X-I-T <laughs> for the last two and a half years, <laughs> yeah. you know. Um, and I'm as obsessed with it as everybody else. It's so interesting what happened in the last couple of weeks with the Extinction Rebellion guys yeah. gluing themselves to stuff. I actually went on to Waterloo Bridge. It was amazing. I mean, it was like a kind of festival like going carnival. on. Yeah, it was like a carnival. It was amazing. And Greater Thunberg, I mean, this extraordinary schoolgirl, oh, Swedish schoolgirl, she sat, everyone but Theresa May, who's otherwise engaged, trying to hang on to her job, but she sat with, you know, all the other party leaders and she just gave them what for. Yeah. And she said, you know, how come you're claiming 45% climate gas reductions when actually it's only 10% because you're, you're excluding everything you import? And you're excluding air travel. And they were all kind of going, ooh, got us there. You know, I mean, she's, she's so, so I think that, I think that is going to change the conversation, actually. And one of the, and I'm going to come out as a staunch Remainer, actually, at this point, because, hey, why not? You know, but, but one of the reasons that I think we have to be part of Europe is that I think, and it is quite complicated, we need nest, we need completely new political structures to deal with what we're facing. We need to act globally, we need to act regionally, and we need to act locally. And ironically, I think national government is about the least effective for doing all the things we need to do in terms of changing our behaviours. So for me, you know, we need to strengthen. I mean, the EU is in a, it, it's probably the, the best hope we've got globally of a, a body who is, you know, advanced and democratic enough to actually start making the arguments about we've got to do this dif differently. You know, I, I spend a lot of time in Scandinavia sort of, you know, lecturing and so on. And I mean, that they're, they're, they're so ahead of the game in terms of actually walking the walk and not just talking the talk. And so, you know, I, I one of the things that I find ironic is that the, the vision of the, Bre you know, the Brexiteers is very much to do with going global and global trade and everything. But it's actually the old model that we have to ditch now. Yes. You know, we can't be suddenly importing all our food from America. That's literally the opposite of the direction we need to be going in. And it's a free trade. It's, it's free trade unleashed is, is, the, is the real true Brexiteer uh, vision. And that's that's so twentieth century, darling. You know, yeah. it's just we we've got to get over that. Yeah. We've got to move on to the next phase. But it's like someone who's mm. ill. You've got to recognise you're ill first before you yeah. start to look at the, yeah. the symptoms and no, the solution. That's right. And the government policymakers yeah. today probably don't even acknowledge the no, fact no, no, that no. There's, there's well things at play. Here. As wonderful Greta, you know, said to to Theresa, not in the room, but you know. Teresa, sorry, you know, basically, how can you be talking about cutting global emissions and planning a third runway at Heathrow? It's just absolute cognitive dissonance, you know, and we've got to just keep saying this now. For me, I mean, you know, the real answer to your question is, it's got to happen from above and below. Above, it's already happening. So the government is in private, absolutely putting stuff in its pants at the thought of what's going to happen to the NHS when uh -huh. if we go in the direction we're going. So they're, they're terrified. They put this pathetic little sugar tax in place, which is going to do absolutely nothing at all. But for me, they do need to start using taxation. I mean, I think I, I actually believe there should be a meat tax. I, I you know, I, I don't see it as a natural born right to eat cheap meat. I see it as a, something that debases us. And it's, it's ecologically it's just impossible to carry on like this. 
So, you know, we, we tax all sorts of other things. We, we, you know, we didn't, we didn't sort of, we tax alcohol, we tax tobacco. I mean, there's all sorts of things that are taxed in order to stop people engaging in them. Uh, we have to do it with food. And also we have to start rewarding farmers who actually grow food so that actually our grandchildren might be able to eat too. I mean, organic food is the only food where the true cost is already internalised, which is why it appears expensive. It's yes. not expensive. That's just what good food costs. That's the costs. real cost yeah, of yeah, food, yeah, producing yeah. proper quality food. Yeah. So, so that, and I think, as I say, um, I think the, the language, the, the, the landscape is really changing. I thought it was incredible that Mark Carney came out last week and, and wrote an article basically saying companies have got to adapt, adapt to climate change or they're, or they're going to go extinct. I mean, I thought that was amazing. You know, I think the same day as the David Attenborough climate change film came yeah. out. So I think, you know, it, 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 there are tipping points and I think we're reaching a political tipping point. You think we're close, point. getting close I think now. so, yeah. yes. I hope so. Well, I hope so too. It's been a real treat uh, and pleasure talking to you. Pleasure I mean, talking it's, it's, to you It's too. such a huge, yeah, I know. Var varied yeah. subject. <laughs> I mean, history and architecture and food it's and everything. culture. It's everything that is, makes, it is up, makes up life. It is a metaphor for life. It is yeah. a metaphor for life that is also life. Absolutely. Yes. Well, we're at the point of the conversation where I'm going to ask my guest for place or two maybe just one place in this case that carolyn loves and could recommend somewhere in london it can be anywhere it could be food or a walk or a museum or anything what's one place you love that we may not know about well i'll give you a food one and a non-food one the food one and appropriately my stomach just rumbles as you ask that question <laughs> is um a wonderful cheese shop but many other things as well as cheese called la fromagerie um, it's not cheap because it is in Maribyrn and their rents are insane, but the food is absolutely extraordinary and they do literally import, you know, cheeses made by one producer on an alpine pasture somewhere in oh, Switzerland. Well, yeah. And, it, you know, it, it's very, very special. And the cheese room itself, which is about the size of my kitchen, which is, you know, not vast, but I mean, it's, it's, it's a temple to cheese. And you go and you slightly freeze because you're at the temperature of the cheese. <laughs> and you have hugely knowledgeable people that can just talk you around, you know, so it's just a cheese shop or is a restaurant? No, it has a restaurant, it's a cafe, they have incredible cakes, uh, charcuterie, Ooh, biscuits, preserves. <laughs> I mean, yeah. get on down. It's really yeah. lovely. So that, La Fromagerie on Moxon Street in Marylebone. Wonderful. Yeah. Uh, just off the high street. The non-food thing, because I am an architect, is people may not know the Soane Museum. Uh, so Sir John Soane, who was, among other things, the architect of the Bank of England, which is on a street called Poultry, because... Because that's he, where the chicken juice is. Exactly. Yeah. So it's all linking up beautifully. <laughs> he, his house is actually beautiful. It's on Lincoln's in Fields, so in sort of legal London, if you like. Mm -hmm. And it's two big Georgian houses, not together, but inside, it's totally unexpected. He was a massive collector of sculptures and paintings and so on. Some very, very good paintings as well. I mean, proper stuff that you might find in the National Gallery type stuff. And it's so complex and intricate and surprising inside. For example, there's a three-story high slot down the back, down into a cellar where he used to lie in a tomb and pretend to be a monk and stuff. So it's it's extraordinary and amazing and, and I think a sort of undiscovered treasure for many people. So I recommend that very much, the, the Sohn Museum. Well, they're two very different and, uh, I don't know, complimentary, but, but two wonderful recommendations. So thank you very much indeed. And everybody, make sure you get down there. <laughs> thank you, Carolyn. Welcome. So with that said, how can people find out more about you or contact you or get your book? Where, where can people find it? Well, um, that's very kind of you to ask. I mean, I, <laughs> this is a bit weird. 
And my publishers are going to be embarrassed now, but I had a blog spot called hungrycitybook.co.uk, mm-hmm. which they took down a couple of months ah, ago without telling me. No naughty. So I'm very naughty. So I'm websiteless at the moment. But if you do go, I mean, if you Google me, you get my TED Talk, yes. you know, so that's an entry. And, you know, and Hungry City comes up and obviously it's available on evil, large, um, Bo- <laughs> online. Boxes or, out of town. And, and in a, a local bookshop near you. Near you, yes. And or there could are, be uh, ordered if it isn't. And there are many in London, fantastic <laughs> local bookshops. Absolutely. But that's not the one I got it from, unfortunately. <laughs> Otherwise I'd be well, travelling forever. You know, he he <laughs> does not buy from Amazon, she'll cast the first day. Yeah. yeah. But mm. I thoroughly recommend everyone listening gets uh, Carolyn Steele's book, Hungry City, How Food Shapes Our Lives. It it was written, I think, roughly nine, ten years ago it now. It came out in 2008. 2008. So, ironically, the year of the banking crisis and the <laughs> ensuing food crisis. So, yes. But, but it, um, it's still 100% valid. And, mm. the, and it feed, feeds, if I can use that word, um, nicely onto your new book, which is going to be called Sitopia. Yes. What's the sub? So, well, the current that? subtitle is How We Can Live Well on a Hungry Planet. Perfect. And that's going to be published. That's going to be published by Random House, uh, Chateau and Windus, uh, in March 2020. So, you know, no need to kind of, as it were, get your coat on and get out quite yet. (laughs) But um, it'll come around very fast. And I hope very much that it feeds into this conversation that we need to be having about how we can live good lives without destroying the planet. It's so important. There's one thing we didn't even touch on, having a good life is having having a good uh, mental health as well. And, huge. And, and there's so many issues. We can, I won't go into it now, but no. you know, food and mental <laughs> health, they, they're all interconnected as well, of Very course. Very much so. Um, poverty and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So once again, Carolyn, thank you ever so much for uh, joining us today on the podcast. It's been a real treat. And... Um, Good luck to you. And I hope some of these concepts and ideas are taken on board by the powers that be, if not by you, then by uh, some teenage girl coming over from Scandinavia. Thank you so very you'd much. be the modern-day Gandhi, I yeah. suppose. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, very much so, yeah. yes. No, well, thank you very much. It's uh, been a great pleasure. Yeah, likewise. Thank you. Every week here at Your London Legacy, we bring straight to your device a new and fascinating guest with a wonderful London-based story. We hope you enjoy listening to their timeless stories as much as we enjoy creating them for you. If so, the best way to show your appreciation is to subscribe to the show. Simply go to www.yourlondonlegacy.com and pop your name and email in the box where shown. That way, you'll never miss another episode. Thank you for your support.